Hello, and welcome to Good People Talk, the monthly podcast of the Good People Fund. This episode, Good People Fund co-founder and executive director Naomi Eisenberger visits with four of GPF's visionary changemakers, each doing extraordinary work helping to resettle aspiring Americans in new communities in different parts of the country. This episode is adapted from a GPF webinar that aired in April. Visit goodpeoplefund.org for more information and to view it. For now, here's Naomi introducing and talking with some of GPF's inspiring grantees and partners in the field, each addressing a common challenge and each making great impact. We are excited tonight to be able to present to you four incredibly dynamic and very smart women who have taken the reins and decided that they are going to respond to one of the biggest problems that this country is currently facing. I don't even want to call it a problem, but an issue. The large numbers of people who have come to this country, I used to refer to them as refugees or immigrants. And I have to say that I was very pleased to learn from one of these women that they had come up with another term, and that term is aspiring Americans. And I think that it is a beautiful term. We hope that you will hear tonight what has spurred these women on to work within their own communities and even beyond. With nothing further to add from me, I'm just going to introduce you to our very esteemed group of women. Dr. Eva Moyo, who is a professor of social work at University of Texas in El Paso. Ava does not work with any specific organization. She doesn't head up an organization. She's just a good person doing amazingly good things. We then have Kristen Bloom, who does her great work down in South Florida in Miami and heads up the Refugee Assistance Alliance, which is actually in Carl Gables. And Kari Miller, who is the founder and executive director of International Neighbors in that great college town of Charlottesville, Virginia. And finally, Sloan Davidson, who was the founder and executive director of Hello Neighbor in Pittsburgh. I'm going to ask each of you if you would give us a little bit of a story about what drove you to doing this work. Ava, would you like to be the first to give us your story? Okay, thank you so much, uh, Naomi and Piers. I think I'm, uh, I feel very honored and very fortunate. The story uh, begins with, you know, I'm a borderlander. Uh, what does that mean? You know, in the context, sometimes people think that that's my last name. So I take, I, I would love to have that as a last name, but a borderlander is sort of like this product of the US-Mexico border, uh, border region where you're trapped between two countries and you almost feel the product of a third. So that's who, who I am. I'm trained in social work. So for the last uh, 35 years, I've been in the trenches of service. And most recently I've been in academia. So academia gives you a very interesting perspective. I came late into the academic world. I trained with community health workers, primarily in Mexico. So they really taught me how to engage communities, how to uh, be grounded on people's assets, uh, regardless of the significant needs that they have. Uh, I'm a product of migration immigration. Um, sometimes 
um, sort of like uh, even immigration, but sometimes sort of like irregular immigration. So I'm a product of these two countries and the realities of why people move and get displaced. Um, it all started really the humanitarian work specifically with uh, new Americans through uh, my friend, Darlene Bailey, who is a very dear friend of Peter, Big Peter, Peter, who is very much linked with the Good People Fund, who then uh, said there's a, there are teddy bears, Eva, they need to be, they need to be moved. Uh, the teddy bears need to go to children. Do you think you can make the move and the placement of teddy bears possible for my friend, uh, Peter? And I said, I have no idea what does that mean, but let's connect. So it was really the Good People Fund that allowed me to connect with Peter. The teddy bears made it to El Paso in one box, and then came a second, and then a 10 boxes, and then 20, and then 30. And I was in the hospital a couple of weeks ago, and I remember getting a, a wonderful text from my friend Peter, who said, there are another 10 boxes on your way. So yesterday, I put another three boxes into my vehicle and moved them to Ciudad Juarez. So the story is basically that I try to connect people. My job is to connect people and connect need with possibilities, trying to ensure that if it is a good people fund or it's individuals in Placitas, New Mexico, or individuals outside of the region that wanna connect with shelters in Ciudad Juarez to ensure that potentially new Americans while they wait and wait patiently on the Mexican side, have a little bit of hope, a glimpse of possibilities, have a way to have a smile, can have basic needs, uh, to meet their uh, priorities, that's where I come in and I said, maybe I can do something about it. So it's about connecting people with possibilities. Uh, my training is in social work. I believe in social justice. I try my best uh, to allow to ensure that we mitigate the realities of homelessness. But between now and then, uh, my job is to try to bring a little bit of hope and a sense of dignity and support. So that's, that's part of the story. You are also a poster child for the Good People Fund, seeing a problem and going and fixing it. <laughs> Kristen. Yes, um, I kind of fell into this work. My husband is in the military and we move all the time. And we had recently come to Miami and I was looking for a way to get involved. I'm a returned Peace Corps volunteer. I, my background is international relations and teaching English as a second language. And I, you know, like all of you was hearing so much about the Syrian refugee crisis. This was back in early 2017. So I attended a Syrian supper club dinner that was held by a local nonprofit organization. And I met two Syrian families there. They had been in the US already for about six months and everybody at the dinner, you know, wanted to do whatever we could to help welcome them and feel um, part of our community in Miami and they just kept saying again and again we really need help learning English and we need help getting jobs so since I have experience teaching English as a second language I thought well great this is how I can do my little part to help them and I went to their house the first day I was paired with a different family who wasn't at this dinner the family had already been in the U.S. for one year they have three school-age kids and I was prepared with my English lesson. I stayed for three hours and we never even touched my English lesson because they brought this huge stack of mail that they didn't understand anything. They didn't know if it was junk mail or something important from the government about their status or their health insurance or something. And then we took all this time going through their mail. I don't speak one word of Arabic. They don't speak any English. 
but I just thought of myself, you know, as a Peace Corps volunteer or my husband and I also lived in Japan for four years when I don't speak any Japanese and what that experience was like for me. And so I just wanted to take the time to sit with them and walk them through everything. And we got through their mail and then they brought out another stack of papers from the school. They have three school age kids. And I always tell people, imagine something as simple as a field trip permission form. They're going on Google Translate, they're translating it. It's translating literally as a trip to the field. And they're thinking after all we've been through, why would I ever give you permission to take my kid to a field? What are you gonna be doing at this field? So just little things like this that you and I take for granted because we live here. The mom was pregnant at the time. We were talking about prenatal vitamins and I left their house that day after three hours and I just felt so overwhelmed for them. And I just kept thinking like, who were they saving all of those questions for? They've been in the U.S. already for one year. If I didn't come today, who were they waiting for? So I went back to the, the organizers of the dinner and I said, you know, I they do need help learning English, but more than that, I feel like they just need a friend. <laughs> they need a local counterpart in the community who will just help them navigate their life. And I don't speak Arabic, but at least I grew up in the US and I know how our systems work here. And I don't know about food stamps, but I can find the answers for you. And so I blindly volunteered to organize all of the volunteers who wanted to help one of the Syrian families this this organization was working with and that got the ball rolling so here we are okay sloan hi everyone it's so lovely to see you and be sharing our panel stage um, with some of my favorite people in the whole world um, i'm sloan davidson i'm the founder and ceo of hello neighbor and we're based here in pittsburgh pennsylvania i'm a pittsburgh native but i lived away um, for about 15 years and when i moved back i was six months pregnant and there was something in that journey of returning to where I was from and having my family support. I had spent 15 plus years of my career focused mostly on international populations and a lot of work with women and girls. And so I've spent a lot of time in countries where refugees come from and other countries as well, sitting on the floor, you know, not always speaking the language, but having work to do. And so sitting with translators, interpreters, and really focusing on how to support women in particular, and also girls. And when I came back to Pittsburgh, I started looking around and, and realizing, first of all, number one, that I was really positive about the direction Pittsburgh was headed. We had this new, really um, progressive, fantastic mayor, and it had changed so much since I had grown up here. And two, I really wanted to get to know some of the international populations that called Pittsburgh home. And so I shifted that lens that I had had internationally and really focused it here in Pittsburgh. And I was very surprised to learn, as other panelists would be, and most people that refugees receive 90 days of initial support from their resettlement agency. And then traditionally are supposed to be self-sufficient. And like Kristen said so beautifully, you know, then what? And who are they waiting for? And that road to self-sufficiency can be really, really hard. And so I had that similar journey and awakening as Kristen described, just looking around and seeing a great need, certainly not to save these, these amazing people. They are making it on their own and they're more resilient than I could ever imagine. And they will be just fine. But that idea of having a support system, a friend, someone to help guide and, and just help them back to 
build, build back their lives felt like an enormous opportunity and one that wasn't really being tackled here in Pittsburgh. I went around and had conversations with um, refugees themselves, interfaith leaders, community leaders, elected officials, foundations, pretty much everybody. I was so sure that this thing in my head existed, this additional layer of support after resettlement. And every time I had those conversations, people were like, this is a really good idea. You should do it. And that's sort of how the idea for Hello Neighbor was born. And that was just shy of four years ago. Um, and so in the past four years, we've directly matched 125 refugee families from 13 countries of origin with caring Pittsburghers to help guide and support them in their new lives. And beyond our core mentorship program, we now have family service offerings that help pregnant moms and their babies. Navigating the healthcare system is very hard for all of us, for everybody, but having that added layer of being Black or Brown, having language access issues and cultural issues can just make the experience almost insurmountable. And then we also have some programs we've launched um, during the pandemic around direct services, cash assistance, and helping students navigate remote learning. And then lastly, we have a national network called the Hello Neighbor Network, which I think I'll talk about a little bit later in, uh, in our panel, but that's how I, I get to um, interact quite frequently with, with Kari and Kristen that are here and, um, and help support refugee and immigrant organizations all across the country. Kari, next up. Well, I would be remiss if I did not mention, as Kristen did, my Peace Corps volunteer experience. I was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand and having the experience of living for years in a new culture, learning a new language, you really just gain the empathy that so many Americans who don't travel or get that opportunity probably can't gain. Um, but I am an educator by trade. I was a 20-year public school elementary teacher. And be back to Hmong is another reason why I started International Neighbors. Because as a teacher at an elementary school, be back from Nepal, Bhutan was the country of origin for his family of refugees, fell off the monkey bars and of course broke his arm. And be back like hundreds and hundreds of other refugees I noticed in my teaching career did not have an emergency contact because his family was resettled and there was not one person that they could actually list on their child's documentation for an emergency contact. So this poor child that I adored was forced to sit in the clinic with me holding his hand, but not able to give him any medicine, not able to drive him directly to the emergency room, which was my maternal instinct, but to wait for four hours until his family was located at one of their two jobs and a taxi that could bring them to get their child to the emergency room. And for 10 years, I had been saying like Sloan, you know, somebody should do something. I'm sure there's something that exists. And my gosh, I really wish that there was, I don't think any of us wanted to found an organization. I would much rather it already be done. And the fact that there really isn't anyone that connect our, can connect our neighbors to their neighbors and to resources, that was the impetus for creating International Neighbors. Thank you. You know, as I listen to each of you, there's a word that comes to mind, um, and that's the concept of community, because it really does run through each of your programs. Perhaps each of you could comment and share with us why community is so important for, for these new Americans or aspiring Americans. So community, as you said, may be an overused term, but I don't think that it can be over-exaggerated because 
community, if all of us reflect on where we are today or where we turn, if we're having a bad day, community in your church, in your synagogue, in your university, we often, Americans, have many, many, many levels of community on which we rely. And so maybe it's an underlying, you know, you don't really, really find it gratifying until maybe it's gone, but community is built over time. And it is something that I feel like every single person relies on throughout every single day. And for the refugee community, they had to leave their community and their networks behind. So I think it's crucial that organi organizations like ours are building that community along with them. Kristen? I think all of us, if we weren't sure about our community before COVID-19, have really had that right to the front and center for all of us. Um, and I think it helped all of us realize how much we really do rely on our community. And so for us, we feel like it's helped our audience see what our families are going through. They're living in this isolation before we came along. And a lot of people are surprised to know first of all, that there are any Syrian refugees or refugees from Eritrea living in Miami, because in Miami, almost all of those refugees and immigrants who come, come from Latin America. But then they'll say like, well, don't they have each other? Can't they just rely on each other? But they can't. They can't. And our families in particular, um, I'm not sure in Charlottesville and El Paso, and, and Pittsburgh, but our families are very far apart from one another, like one and a half hours from one another and don't have transportation. And so being able to be an organization that brings all of these people together to form that community for them is really, really important. The experience of forced migration for whatever the reason might be, could be so traumatic, could be so impactful that I think that finding a sense of community, a sense of bonding, I call it the gomita in Espanol, sort of like the glue that holds people together is critical. Without a sense of community, you're isolated. We know what isolation does to the spirit. We know that it's connected to potential chronic stress. We know that it can deteriorate your life and your health and can produce early loss, disability, and even death. So really a sense of community or communities, I think is critical when you're on the move, whatever that move or migration would be. Now, I also think of the communities that uh, new Americans are leaving behind. And what does that mean? Where you feel like you have lost a sense of belonging, where you are forced to leave the most precious asset you have, which is your family and your family, your loved ones, you know, everything that you have worked your life with, because you, you can no longer live in a safety place. It also reminds me that communities need to ensure that the rights of every citizen and individuals are protected, but given the turmoil and given the, um, the negative forces that exist, you have communities that are torn, that are fractured, that are primed for, you know, organization of crime, smugglers, traffickers that really prey on people's lives. And so to build communities that are safe, where people feel like they can thrive, where they are a member, where they belong without losing their culture, their languages, their identities, I think is someone that we should strive to work every single day to ensure that these communities are really communities that bring out the spirit and lift the people's lives. It's not an easy task. It's a very important thing to do. I think it's probably hardest for you 
you're in a very different situation than our other than our other panelists. Sloan, any comment on this? First, we think a lot here at Hello Neighbor about building community within community. And so, yes, we're helping, you know, create that sense of belonging and inclusion across the region. But within Hello Neighbor, pre-pandemic, we would do these large events where we take 150 people to a park and do a potluck or to a baseball game or a soccer game or to a museum. And the idea was that they could all also see each other. You know, they, they might, the woman might not be the only woman in the park with the hijab that day. You know, a child, you know, a child might see other people that look like them in a setting. And we also want to create a, a sense of upstanding. A lot of Americans for a lot of Americans, refugees and immigrants is a theory. They might support them, they might not, but the reality is that two thirds of Americans don't interact with a refugee or immigrant on a daily basis. And that's a big problem. And that creates a lot of polarization in our country. And so organizations around the country you know, this is part of the work that we do. Of course, our core, our hearts, you know, are, are built to support the refugees and immigrants in our communities. But I also take very seriously our role in helping to educate everyday citizens. And can they educate themselves? Absolutely, they can. But, you know, we do it through storytelling. We do it through interactions. I always say, you don't have to share a language to share a space with someone. And that's why we do a lot that involves arts and crafts, a lot that involves cooking, a lot that just involves time together. I believe the greatest gift that we have is time. And so, you know, to be involved with Hello Neighbor is a time commitment. And, and we take, you know, and, that, and having a high touch program is something I'm really proud of because we're saying, you know, don't just come in and come out, create a really meaningful relationship with people in your community that you'll know for a long, long time. I want a lot of the, the families that we introduce to go way beyond the bounds of what Hello Neighbor offers. We're creating a sense and a space and a place for the children in our program to become the future. And, and I think that can't be underscored. You know, we've been using the term new Americans throughout tonight. To be more specific, we're really, we're talking about anyone who has come to the United States under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. They're fleeing uh, personal and ethnic persecution, war, trafficking, which leads me to, to the idea that this is really in no small way, a psychological journey for so many of these people or all of them. Kari? So the psychological journey, yes, I do agree that none of the refugees that we serve, none of the refugees that have been resettled to the United States, because as we all know, less than 1% of refugees worldwide actually make it up through the ranks and the biological testing and the background checks and, and to be actually given that refugee title, which really is a badge of honor, but the psychological journey that they've all endured, it's unfathomable. I mean, every single refugee has seen death, has smelled death, has witnessed atrocious conditions, and are still much better. I mean, I'm sure I'd be experiencing PTSD and probably in a mental hospital. And, you know, the fact that at least 99% of the refugees that we serve are so grateful for the opportunity to start anew and, and realize that, you know, that's in the past, just the security of being in a safe place. But the, the book, What is the What? I can't think of the author right now, but there was a line in that book that said, 
if you knew what all I'd been through, you would not add any more torture to, to my life. And that's the thing and why we all exist probably is that these are amazing individuals who have already gone through the most unfathomable circumstances. And so why would we re-traumatize them? And a lot of our systems, unfortunately, that look great on paper, but are not in action, they do re-traumatize these folks. You know, I, I, wanted, I wanted to add, I'm thinking of, um, of children, and I'm thinking of what we know about the brain and what the first three years of life represent. And what these children uh, go through, and um, especially what separation, loss, grief, many times assault may mean. And how much silence do people keep? And then how much they end up disclosing only to become re-victimatized, as you said, Carrie. Um, all of this, at the end of the day, you know, the body and the brain keep the score of trauma. And the trauma is not adequately named and addressed. It would eventually, we will pay the price. Um, so there's a part of me that says, how much is it that we truly know and understand? How much is it that schools and service providers are actually assessing and working with to ensure that the children, the youth, the adults, and the elderly that are able to make it to the North or to the United States are actually provided with opportunities to one, protect, protect the cultural and the linguistic and the wonderful identities that they have without losing the essence of who they are. It reminds me of a powerful uh, statement um, that I, I picked up from one of the, um, one of the new Americans. Uh, she said, life has not been easy for us. The war has brought us in our families and told suffering, but the suffering has not broken our spirits. It has only strengthened our resolve to succeed at life as we start over again. The possibility of having hope of living in a place that allows for safety, that really can ensure the women and the men that their children are gonna be free from threats, from crime, from gangs, from the organization of crime um, is really powerful. And what sometimes we don't fully understand or I have a hard time understanding is that they have escaped their reality to come into a country that has disproportionate inequalities and that can also add to that burden and to those risks. So how do we ensure that those protective factors that they bring are indeed strengthened? How do we build on who they are? How do we ensure that they thrive, that they feel safe and they feel free? So uh, just to end, resilience is indeed extremely important. And there's wonderful studies on the power of resilience, but that cannot only explain that everyone is resilient and we can leave it at that. So there's more for us, I think, all of us to do in that respect so that we can cope, but we can also allow for the openness to express and that we need to ensure that we provide the mental and behavioral health services that are very much needed. The, social, the social isolation is really so severe for 
almost all of these individuals. And for many parts of the world that are still very much living in multi-generational houses and neighborhoods, you know, they, they've gone away from that support, especially the women of having, you know, the sisters, the aunties, the, the moms, the friends, the people around. And so when I started Hello Neighbor, I would talk a lot about the social isolation and the stats and figures around it. Now through the pandemic, I feel like that part of my you know, my talk, um, people start nodding their heads. We understand over the past year what social isolation has done. The one note that I'll add to what Eva so beautifully said around resilience is the opportunity to be seen. Very frequently, we are not there. And when I say we, I, I mean, I'm sure all of us, but here at Hello Neighbor, myself, my staff, the, the mentors and volunteers we train, um, we're, we're very serious that you are not there to fix something. Sometimes you are just there to spend time with somebody as an equal. We do a lot of work to say you are not better than. Your way is maybe not the right way. You might go into someone's home and think you're going to do X, Y, Z and end up drinking Turkish coffee and sitting on the floor and playing with the children. And maybe at the very end, you, you, know, you look at a piece of mail or you do something. That is still meaningful time. For a lot of our women who are so lacking in self-confidence and language, they are still the masters of the kitchen. I have seen women that, you know, maybe are a little turned in and depressed come alive at the opportunity to cook, to welcome someone into their homes. Many parts of the world, having someone in your home is the deepest respect, is the utmost of showing of respect to somebody else. And so I walk, when I walk in someone's home, I'm their equal. And I think in a lot of cases, they know better than me. And so I am not there to fix them. I am not there to save anybody. We, that is not our job. Our job is to spend time with people so that they feel seen. Kristen? You know, a couple of us have touched on a lot of people who think like, oh, they've come to the United States. Now they're in safety. They should be so happy to be here. You know, a lot of this work is so much about relationship building and walking in somebody else's shoes and realizing all that they've been through and all that they're carrying with them. And thinking about the psychological journey makes me think of this story one of my volunteers is telling me recently. The volunteer is in her 20s and she was reading a story um, with a girl who she mentors who's in third grade. And this family has already been in the US for four years. And in the story, a child died. And the little girl said to the volunteer, well, how did she die? And the volunteer said, I'm not sure. And she was like, do you think it was from a bomb? And the volunteer was so shocked because she said that just wasn't even in her realm of thinking. You know, she said, I'm in my 20s and that's not something that even crosses my mind. And here's this little nine-year-old girl. And that's the first thing that she thinks when she hears that a child has died. And, and this little girl has been here for four years already. And so it's just that journey goes on and on and on. And so when I hear people say like, well, they should be so happy to be here. They're safe now. It's like, yes, but it, it, there are a lot of complexities to that. We know that there are some very loud voices in this country that have been very vocal about anti-newcomer, the anti-newcomer group. How does it affect your work? Share a little bit of that briefly with all of us. I think that this is a, this is a really very important topic. Kari? Well, 
I'll, I'll jump in and start. And um, first, I want to give a plug for a campaign called the Belonging Begins With Us campaign. Um, and that's the name of the URL as well, Belonging Begins With Us. It's a campaign from the Ad Council that was launched in the past year. Um, the Hello Neighbor Network was one of the grassroots partners helping to spread the word about this, along with Welcoming America, the Center for Inclusion and Belonging, a number of other really great groups. And the Ad Council does these multi-year campaigns to move the needle on specific issues, does a lot of data and persona work, and then launches a really you know, meaningful campaign. And what they found in the research was the best opportunity we have, us in the space and those that are supportive of refugee and immigrant issues, is to focus on the groups that in theory believe in refugees and immigrants, but don't actually know them every day. I know I sort of referenced this concept earlier in the hour. Um, those are you know, very specific groups of people that are out there. They most likely go to church. They do have a social network you know, in their communities, but they might live in places where they're just not interacting on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if you can, so there's actually a huge middle group that if we could move them along and get them not just in theory, but actually supporting voting, um, both locally, county, statewide, and federally in support of refugee immigrant issues, that, that could really, you know, move the issue forward. The second piece that I think is really important is that we cannot allow for immigrants and refugees to be separate parts of the conversation or to be pinned against each other. This has frequently happened in politics the last 30, 40 years. You know, refugees come fully vetted, immigrants are sometimes coming over the border and they're undocumented um, or illegal, which is not a term that we should use, right? No person is illegal. And so I feel very strongly that we need to come together as refugee and immigrant organizations and we need to, um, we need to really create a coalition, we need to create collaborations, and we need to say we are one voice and we are moving this forward. While the majority of the families we serve are refugees, by definition, we are fully supportive here as an organization for comprehensive immigration reform and for all of the protections that are required for everyone across the immigration suite. And I think that's critically important. We can't be pinned you know, against each other. Um, and the third part that I'll, that I'll mention, then I'll turn over to my other esteemed panelists, is that we have an incredible opportunity with our volunteers and with the people that support us. So not just us as organizations or staff, but for the people that support us to give them the information to go to their water cooler, their Thanksgiving dinner table, their places of influence. The studies have shown the greatest influence that we you have in your network is somebody you know. It's not a politician. It's not the media. It's someone that you know that you're sharing a space with. And so we work really hard to give our volunteers and, you know, the refugees and communities we serve the, the storytelling power, the confidence to go out. And when somebody says something derogatory, inflammatory, racist, xenophobic, sexist, whatever the case may be, that they can speak up and they feel comfortable speaking up and they feel comfortable speaking up on behalf of, of their fellow neighbors. So oh, and I think that was that, Ava? yeah, that was that was brilliant because I think that you 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 highlighted a very important point. I think the way that we speak, how we write, how we refer to each other does matter. So therefore, the terms that we use, the language that we place, we need to be much more mindful of how we speak about each other and the humanity of the other. The other being a reflection of me. 
And that's part of the conversation, um, that there is this dichotomy of the other, and then there is the me. But it's not about the me, it's about the we. And so how do we move the needle in a conversation where we understand that we exist because the other exists? And that no, we may be different in our approach, but at the end of the same, we're part of that humanity. And it's a humanity that includes us all. And by the way, we all have a history of some mobility migration, and that in itself has enriched who we are. Being mindful that it's the fear of the unknown, the fear of the other that is grounded in, well, that, that builds on hate, which then hates, grounds itself on racism, which then fuels on discrimination, which then places the stigma, the biases, all those other terms that get so much traction in some media, that we're gonna have to figure out continuous ways on how to dismantle and how to do that in a way that we don't get angry, which is very difficult because sometimes the things that we hear, the things that we read, the way that our own members of family speak about the other, you know, I don't have to go very far, you know, my family is a family that is a result of immigration, migration, you know, opportunity and yet there's something that happens sometimes luckily not all that you sort of like advance and you tend to forget where you come from but only to realize that now the other one is not deserving I don't know if that makes any sense but for me that's that's a constant battle that I have to find ways to say well again where do we come from so who, what who are the roots where do we build our identity and how do we share responsibility and humanity um, I think the I am you, you are me approach is so important because it tends to really put us on the same ground, understanding that there is enough, for God's sake, enough wealth and enough resources for everyone to have and share and to really enrich and do. And it starts with self. So there's a part of me as a social worker, you know, I'm trained to do micro, meso and macro work, but at the end of the day, it's where do I see the most possibility of advancing the needle in the direction of inclusion, diversity, and respect? Knowing that there's going to be some times where, no, it's almost impossible to have a conversation with someone that is totally turned off, which in this case, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, you know, I stop using any energy and time that I have left so that I can dedicate on the other, because the other might be where a possibility of sign change might take place. But how to do that in a way without creating more polarization and really engaging an ongoing dialogue is really important. So I'm looking for answers and I'm working on that. So if you have answers, I, I wanna gravitate to you so that you can help me reframe those conversations. I also wanted to give kudos to the Framework Institute because the Framework Institute has a really powerful way of helping us to reframe very difficult conversations in such a way that we're able to always be mindful about who the audience is. And keeping the audience in mind, then we can craft messaging in such a way that we can begin to have a dialogue. Christine, did you want to add something quickly to that? Thank you, Eva. That was amazing. Pretty profound. <laughs> yeah, it was. I don't, I don't know what to say after you. Um, I, I was just going to add in, on the side of, you know, anti-newcomer, one thing that has really impacted all of our organizations is the refugee admission 
number that is set by the president. And in the past four years, it has been at the lowest it's ever been in the history of the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And so that, of course, makes our work really, really difficult. And we are here and we're not going anywhere and we work as hard as we can to continue welcoming the families that we work with and getting our communities involved and like Sloan said and Eva and I know Kari does this too we encourage our volunteers to build relationships that long last long past our work but the fact of the matter is we can only welcome as many refugees that are allowed into the country and so that is a really really big factor in our work and we're all waiting on pins and needles for President Biden to sign the presidential determination to allow more refugees to come into the US, but that is something that directly impacts our work. I suspect that you're all going to be facing some significant needs because the numbers are probably going to be considerably higher than what they have been in the past. Before we close, I wanted to give Sloan an opportunity to, uh, to share a little bit about the Hello Neighbor Network, which we were really very honored and privileged to, to help get going a few years ago. Happy to, thank you for um, giving the space for that. So it is a lonely road being a founder and being an executive director of a nonprofit. We advocate so much for the refugees and immigrants that we, um, you know, we support, but it's it's hard on us as well. And as Hello Neighbor was growing, a lot of people were reaching out and they wanted to learn more. But the most insightful and honest conversations were with other people in the space. I remember the first time I talked to Kari and it was like the wall came down and we just shared so much of what was happening. And as those informal and formal conversations continued, I realized that there was a huge gap and a huge opportunity in finding ways to have us collaborate, create community amongst ourselves, and ultimately find a way towards sustainability and scalability of our organizations. The truth is, is that for the majority of grassroots and community-based nonprofits, their funding will be local. So every once in a while you find a great funder like the Good People Fund that's looking around for really fantastic nonprofits around the country, but most grassroots and community-based nonprofits are raising money at home. And so the idea for the Hello Neighbor Network was, well, let's bring those people together. Let's find a way to help support the leaders. And if you support the leaders, you support the organizations. If you support the organizations, you support the communities that ultimately they're serving. And so that's really what we did. We started with eight organizations, eight founding members, and we now have 23 members from 17 states and it's Charlottesville and Miami, Missoula, Montana, LA, South Bend, Indiana, Washington, DC, Mobile, Alabama, you name it. And these are incredible leaders, some of whom are refugee or immigrant identifying and working within their communities. Um, and, and some like Hari, uh, Kristen and I, you know, just care very deeply and we've worked incredibly hard to build these organizations. And the idea is that over time, this coalition will build and that will be able to support each other. And we do a lot of different things. Um, one of which I will comment on here is regranting. So some of our funders have come to us and said, 
we'd love to fund more things in the refugee and immigrant space. It's a lot of due diligence. Like how do we find the groups that are really doing the good work? And I've said, well, I know who they are. <laughs> Why don't you give me the, you know, if you could give me the funding, then I will help disperse it to them and I'll, we'll run the grant process for you. And so there've been some really great family um, organizations all the way up to, you know, larger corporate funders that are really excited about that opportunity. And then the other thing that we do outside of monthly get togethers, webinars and calls is an annual convening. Okay, thanks, Sloan. We're looking forward to being part of that as well. I think this conversation has been beyond our expectations. I just can't thank all of you enough for taking more time out of your life to be with us tonight. Thank you again, and good night. <laughs>